This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Revi Palat, the author of The Making of an Indian Ocean World Economy Between 1250 to 1650, Princes, Paddy Fields, and Bazaars published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2015 as a part of Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies. Dr. Ravi Palat is the professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton and is the author of Capitalist Restructuring and the Pacific Rim, published in 2004, and the editor of Pacific Asia and the Future of the World System. The present book, The Making of an Indian Ocean World Economy, counters Eurocentric notions of long-term historical change by drawing upon the histories of societies based on wet rice cultivation to to chart an alternate pattern of social evolution and state formation. It traces interstate linkages and the growth of commercialization without capitalism in the Indian Ocean. Welcome, Pilat, to uh, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. We would like to start to uh, by learning about yourself. If you can start us off by saying a few words about uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and especially your affiliation with the Binghamton School, I would call it, of world systems theory and any influential mentors that you had along the way. Thank you. Uh, I grew up in India, in southern India, and I did my MA in history at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. When I was at uh, the JNU, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein from Binghamton had come and given a talk. And I got interested in world systems as a way of looking at the world. And so then I applied for the PhD program at Binghamton and went there. So I did my, this book is actually my PhD dissertation finished in 1988, but then I worked on other projects like the one you mentioned on capitalist restructuring in the Pacific Rim. And then I came back to it in the two, uh, after 2008, eight nine, and worked, uh, finished, uh, revised my dissertation extensively. Uh, Wallerstein was uh, obviously a very influential uh, uh, mentor. So was Terry Hopkins, who founded the graduate program at Binghamton, Giovanni Arrighi, uh, 
and for my work on the wet rice cultivation, Francesca Bray, Josh Gormans put me on to the nomads in the, in the Asian world. Those were my main uh, uh, influences, I would say. Uh-huh. So back in the days when you were thinking about this project, can you tell us about the research process and the writing experience and what came after that book? Uh, has it changed or have it shaped the way you thought about, let's say, the Pacific and Wall System Theory? Yes, it has. I think uh, I started looking at the book. Uh, I started uh, researching on inscriptions in temple walls and on uh, copper plates in India. Uh, these are the because southern India doesn't have many written records uh, which survive because the the records were written on palm leaf manuscripts which many of which disappeared, disintegrated over time. So our main source of information in southern India, apart from travelers' accounts in European and other languages, are stone inscriptions on temples, walls, uh, copper plate inscriptions, things of that sort. So I started looking at the agrarian system of southern India, and... I was floundering around with that till Terence Hopkins, one of my PhD advisors, asked me a question. Uh, Everyone talks about the gold and silver from the Americas going to India and China, but what did it do? Where did it go? That got me started on looking at the infrastructures which develop uh, a demand for cash. And that led me to the work on rice economies, and I developed the project from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, the Pacific, uh, my studies in the Pacific were much later. I was looking at the, uh, the reconstruction of the Pacific after the Second World War, which is a very different topic from uh, the mechanics of the Indian Ocean uh, from the 14th and 15th, uh, 17th centuries. I see. And, and that's really beautifully woven together, um, these alternative, let's say, archival sources that you brought in in this book, um, which, which, uh, which will take me to actually talking about the book now. Um, so let's turn now to the book and its chapters. The book consists of four chapters beside the introduction and the epilogue. And the introduction towards a framework to debate world history, bringing South India and the Indian Ocean back in. Um, I would like to ask you, what analytical possibilities do we gain by situating South Asia and the Indian Ocean in world history? Uh, well, it, uh, part of it came up in uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s, when the so-called California group of historians, of, of Chinese historians, uh, began to talk about commercialism developing in China and saying that capitalism would have developed in China except for the fact that the Europeans discovered America and they were they, that expanded the possibilities of action for Europeans. And my feeling, my argument in this book is to say that this is to misread Asian and Chinese history because... Uh, uh, these societies developed in a very different manner, which is not capitalist at all. That 
And the, why the Indian Ocean? Why, why uh, uh, India? Because uh, the, oh, the Chinese debate was carried on into rethinking European history and in some senses rethinking Turkish history. But India and the Indian Ocean was left, uh, was left untouched. So my book was an attempt to bring uh, India and the Indian Ocean into this debate, but to challenge this debate to say that the, the pattern of development was not capitalist at all, that it was a very different type of development. Mm-hmm. So you would say that your book makes an intervention in the Great Divergence yes, debate? Yes, by recent, by let's say decentering or recentering the Indian Ocean once again in this debate, uh, recentering Indian Ocean and decentering Eurocentrism because I think the Great Divergence uh, debate reads Chinese history through a European lens, and I'm trying to read Indian and Chinese Asian history through a different analytical lens based on on the major crop of this region, which is wet rice cultivation. And the relationship that the rulers had with the nomads. And you unpack that throughout the the four chapters. In the first chapter, dynamics of socio-historical change in societies based on wet rice cultivation. Um, In this chapter, what do you mean by industrious versus industrial revolutions? And what difference, sorry, um, if I may add, what differentiated between these two in terms of the agrarian modes of productions and capital formation and accumulation? Uh, uh, lands under wet rice cultivation were able to support much larger densities of population. And you see that today. The, the countries with the largest population, the most dense populations are in Asia, in areas where rice is grown, Japan, China, India, uh, Indonesia, etc., etc. Uh, and because they were a, a labor was uh, uh, abundant, rather than using machines, which is the Industrial Revolution, laborers became much more industrious that they became much more dexterous in their fingers. They, they could do things with their hands because they were specialized in very narrow sections of the production process. So you have, for instance, the Chinese porcelain manufacturers the Ind- and silk, uh, silk cultivation, Indian textiles, which is divided into a number of different uh, specializations. All of these comes about not using machines, but by using people, about people getting much more skilled in their in their activities, economic activities. So industries in that sense, rather than industrial. Mm-hmm. And this is itself uh, uh, a concept which, as far as I know, was uh, uh, developed by a Japanese economic historian Kaname Akamatsu in the nineteen thirties and revived more recently by another Japanese economic historian, Kaoru Sugihara, from whom I, I got the concept. So you see a, cre- a clear connection between uh, political formations and certain uh, engagement, agrarian engagement, let's say, along maybe James Scott agrarian states um, uh, uh, argument that 
Do you yeah. see there's a connection between these I, two? I, I'm not sure if I would put it as a James Scott thing. The, uh, the basic argument is that because the rice cultivation was so productive that <coughs> the kings, the rulers, uh, could uh, the sultans, etc., could uh, uh, develop very extensive tax bases. So then they did not have to depend on merchants or bankers uh, when they went to war against their neighbors. Unlike the case of the Europeans, each time the European kings had to raise armies, they had to take loans from bankers and so on from the 1400s, 1300s. And each time in return for the loans, they had to make concessions to the capitalists. In Asia, uh, especially white rice growing in Asia, uh, the rulers simply uh, financed their wars through their uh, tax bases, through their treasuries. So they had no compulsion to make concessions to capitalists. The idea of the ruler was to keep the subjects happy and obedient. And that meant in times of famine, instead of prices going up, to open the granaries, let the people have food. So you have capital, individual capitalists, very rich merchants, very rich nobles, but the society itself was not capitalist. And that's why you would characterize it as industrious? Uh, industrious, as I mentioned, because the uh, craft production was very extensive. Uh, 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 cotton cloth production in India, uh, uh, various items, porcelain in China, for instance. Uh, but this was done without machines. It was done by individuals uh, getting uh, very much more skilled in production. So there's elementary looms for co cotton production, elementary spinning wheels, but nothing like the Industrial Revolution of, say, uh, England when they started making cotton cloth. Mm -hmm. so it was not in machines, it was rather the people being more industrious rather than industrial. You've mentioned the nomadic populations and in chapter two, global roots of local politics, state formation in an Eastern mirror. Um, what role do you assign the nomadic populations in the ocean world economy and why China and India were susceptible to their invasions and lastly, how did that shape technological development and economic centralization? Okay. Uh, I mentioned that the rulers in rebetterized areas did not depend on capitalist financiers for their wars. But what they needed was horses. Horses, good quality war horses, were the most important element in military warfare in, in the early modern times, late medieval times. And in areas in India and China, because of climatic conditions, because the best land was taken over for rice cultivation, they couldn't breed good horses. So they needed to have some sort of alliance with the, with the nomads who could provide them with horses. The Chinese, but there was again differences in China and India. In India, because of the ecology, there were always areas where nomads could uh, be, uh, be safe from imperial uh, attacks. China didn't have that. 
So China had an empire, which is a relatively centralized political unit, whereas India never had a centralized political unit, except for a brief period under the Mughals and then uh, under the British. So um, so, uh, in China, the empire could institute what they called the tea horse markets, where uh, markets where the nomads could come in tribute missions, give the Chinese horses and get the, the products of a sedentary civilization, things that the nomads could not produce, silk, porcelain, uh, tea, etc., uh, which they could take back. In India, there was no such mechanism. Every now and then, nomads came in, they were absorbed in either they conquered this country uh, and took over the kingship, or they were absorbed into the imperial armies and given ranks, given revenues from certain areas and so on. So the political centralization in China, because of uh, uh, the terrain, the lack of political centralization in India because of the terrain were two differences. Uh, there was a real uh, technological development was not so much dependent on uh, nomads, but on the conditions of wet rice cultivation, which, because it supported large densities of population, it could lead people into non-food producing activities on a full-time basis. So they developed specialization. Some became weavers, some became uh, tea cultivators, some uh, grew spices, uh, some uh, made uh, swords, uh, they did different things. So, but all without uh, without using machines largely. Uh, there was very little economic centralization in any sense, except in the sense of uh, uh, similar economic activities were carried out because they did not have large-scale capitalists having large-scale enterprises. What you had was a plethora of small cultivators, small craftsmen, small traders. These were uh, these guys ran around. For instance, when you're talking about Oceanic trade, uh, the commodities which which took which brought in large profits, silk cloth, for instance, uh, very fine muslin cotton cloth uh, uh, from India, for instance, these took very little space in the ships. So other people clambered on aboard. They took some rough co- uh, rough cotton cloth. They took some uh, spices and traveled along the ships to make small margins of profit. Muslim traders from South India, for instance, went to Mecca uh, for the Hajj uh, uh, and used the spices to pay for, for their travel. Uh, you know, it was, like a, uh, it was like cash. They bartered and things of that sort. So, so this sort of petty commodity production uh, was prevalent across the area rather than large merchants controlling uh, sectors of production. And you follow up that with chapter three, commercialism without capitalism, uh-huh. labor intensive manufacturing and the growth of trade. Yeah. Um, what are some of the sources you draw on for analyzing the history of commerce and labor in this chapter? Well, and what is the role of, sorry, uh, commodity production and the spread of monetizations and market growth? Oh, well, uh, the... Uh, the uh, because there were a lot of traders uh, 
as I mentioned, a lot of people are not in full food production full time. They needed some sort of currency to be able to conduct transactions. So this uh, this came largely with European traders who brought in uh, gold and silver from the Americas, especially from the 1520s on. Before that, they used a variety of uh, uh, types of media to conduct trade. And what you have, uh, the sources are basically uh, inscriptions which talk about different communities in South India uh, specializing in different types of commodity production. You have uh, archaeological evidence about uh, uh, things which are produced. You have travelers' accounts, uh, 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 European travelers who came in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s uh, to the Indian Ocean, talking about what they saw in different areas, what was traded, what were the trading links, and and that sort of thing. Uh, You had one other part of that question? Yes, uh, I'm interested in the role of commodity production, the spread of monetization okay. and market growth. Uh, because a lot of people, because this is a highly monitor, uh, this is a very large society in population, a lot of people who engage in producing a number of different things uh, like uh, craft production, uh, ivory carving, uh, uh, textiles, uh, growing spices, growing legumes, all sorts of things, and they had to trade. And so trading was was a very important uh, uh, aspect of integrating the economies both within the South Asian subcontinent and with uh, the neighboring areas, Arabia, Africa, Southeast Asia. Uh, And all of this meant that you needed to have uh, monetization uh, to be able to trade uh, in these areas. So initially they used... uh, whatever silver and gold they had, but also they use copper coins, they use badam, uh, they use cowrie shells, but these were increasingly displaced once the gold and silver from the Americas came. You bring all of this nicely together in the fourth chapter, a world economy matures between 1450 to 1650. Mm-hmm. How does this chapter intervene in the historiography of the Indian Ocean trade and maritime violence? Uh, prior uh, to, let's say, the Portuguese arrival and post the Portuguese arrival, as you cover in this chapter? Well, uh, there were small uh, pirate fleets along the Indian Ocean coast in Kerala uh, uh, and on the Arabian Sea, but there was not, uh, largely the coast uh, to sea trade was peaceful. The Portuguese and and the other Europeans who came they could dominate maybe the small island states in Southeast Asia, but they could not militarily subjugate the large uh, land empires in India or in China or elsewhere. Or, so what they did was trying to force the traders to, uh, to uh, uh, pay them a tax if they were to sail unimpeded in the ocean. Uh, and so they brought in large-scale violence on the Indian Ocean. But even but this was very ineffective because the Portuguese simply did not have the technology to control uh, trade or, over the entire expanse of the Arabian Sea or the Bay of Bengal, for instance. Uh, 
when the British and the Dutch come in and they displace the Portuguese, they operation, their operations were much more of a commercial nature. So they would want to buy uh, 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 spices, uh, etc., at harvest time when the prices were cheap, store it till the uh, shipping season begins because shipping was determined by the monsoon patterns, monsoon winds, etc. So if they were storing it in warehouses, they were susceptible to attacks by the local rulers. So they had to play a much more careful role in their dealings with the local rulers uh, so that their own people would not be affected. For instance, when the British claimed to have sovereignty over the seas, the Mughal said, okay, but then if the pirates come, you you bring them here. It doesn't matter to the Europeans. If you don't, we will kill all your um, traders in our territory. So, the, so there was a sort of mutual balance of blackmail between the Europeans and domestic rulers. Mm-hmm. So you would say the Indian Ocean frontiers actually penetrated quite deep uh, in terms of politics oh, yes. and connections between these companies and the yeah, uh, yeah, and, and Iranian merchants, for instance, Armenian merchants from Iran, uh, had an embassy in Holland, which was treated on par with any other embassy. Uh, so there was a lot of political going on. Uh, foreign traders who lived in uh, different countries, they managed their own uh, 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 communities. One of the frequent complaints you hear, for instance, the Arabian Peninsula is Indian merchants would cremate their dead and the local population would say, we don't want to smell uh, smell this flesh and there would be a fight. So the traders will say, okay, we'll move from one port to another port. So the, uh, so the sultan will say, no, 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 we are, it's okay, we, uh, we want you back. That sort of thing went on. The flexibility and the accommodation yeah, yeah, you observe uh, yeah. in these processes. Yeah. Um, and in the epilogue, rethinking historical change, um, I would like to ask you and bring you back to uh, chapter three uh-huh. uh, by thinking about how do you situate your book in the growing literature on alternative origins of capitalism? And what is the significance of emphasizing commercialism uh, without capitalism? Why do you make this distinction? Uh, okay. Uh, usually alternate origins of capitalism is to argue that capitalism originated not in Europe, but in a sort of worldwide exchange of commodities, a worldwide spread of of, uh, trade commercialism. I'm arguing against that and saying that to say that is to read the history of other parts of the world through European lens that there was a different way of development uh, towards commercialism which did not involve capitalism. That was the way in India, in Southeast Asia, and the Arab countries uh, in China. That uh, it is only because the Europeans were able to eventually subordinate these countries and change the economic structures that capitalism took place in, uh, uh, took over in these countries. In other words, I think capitalism originated in Europe. To read the history of commercial exchange in the Indian Ocean as capitalist is to, is to negate the historical originality of 
of commercial exchanges in the Indian Ocean region uh, in Asia and to look at it through Eurocentric eyes. I see. So you're against a teleological reading of history by... Yes, exactly. And trying actually to sketch from the ground up literally Uh the the history of commerce in this region and how it connects to the rest of the world. That's right. That's right. right. Uh, Well, Ravi, we've taken a lot of your time and I would like to know about your um, current projects or what you hope to work on in the future. Okay, I'm working on uh, two different projects now. One is to look at the influence of the Americas on early modern Asia. We see uh, that a lot of work has been done on how Americas was central, the colonization of the Americas, uh, North and South America, the Caribbean islands, was central to the development of capitalism in Europe because they got sugar and gold and silver and uh, they could grow cotton and tobacco and things in the Americas and how that led to capitalist development in Europe. We have very little on the impact of the Americas on Asia. Uh, Gold and silver were coming directly to Asia, either through Europe or directly through the Manila Galleon. A lot of Asian crop, uh, Asian food would be unrecognizable without the influence of the Americas. Chilies, for instance, uh, tomatoes, uh, potatoes, all of these, I mean, you can't imagine most Indian cuisines, Thai cuisine, without these things. Peanuts in China, uh, corn in China. there is some evidence to show that Chinese populations before 1500s plateaued at about 150, 100 to 150 million, and then it declined, and then it went up again. Uh, once the crops from the Americas came in, they could be grown in areas which is inhospitable to traditional Chinese plants, corn, peanuts, uh, things of that sort, so that... Uh, uh, by 1750, 1800, the population of China had gone up to 450. That is three times what it was before. Uh, how did all of this affect Asian economies? How did that lead? Whereas Americas led to capitalism in Europe, colonization of the Americas led to capitalism in Europe. It did not lead to that in Asia. So how did that work out is something I'm trying to look at. I'm also looking at a much more contemporary thing on neoliberalism and how that affects migration. But that's very contemporary, not related to the historical stuff. This project sounds fascinating, especially the botanical exchanges and how that uh-huh. impacted the economy. Yeah. There is definitely much to say about that. Um, to think about other kinds of maybe Colombian exchanges that happened in the Indian Ocean. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, thank you. For, thank you for sharing your insights about your book today. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the making of an Indian Ocean world economy between 1250 to 1650 Princess Paddyfields and Bazaars published by Calgrave Macmillan in 2015. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.